theology. Uh, I told you about the situation with a student of mine. The shirt didn't exactly say this. The shirt, if I recall correctly, said, Jesus, don't tap out. And uh, we talked to you about graphic art theology. That seems to be a, uh, something that's, that's prevalent in our culture today. And, and we, said, we made the statement that while graphic art theology can be catchy, that's something that you, I mean, who can't remember Jesus don't tap out? I mean, that's, that's pretty catchy. Uh, it even sounds cute, but it's usually shallow, it's usually incomplete, and it's often misleading. One of the most popular pieces, I think, of graphic art theology began in the 90s. You probably remember this. You may even have wore one of these things, WWJD. Uh, you remember that? Uh, in fact, it became so popular, over 10 million bracelets, T-shirts, hats, and mugs uh, made its way through our culture. And what began, we're not here to criticize, uh, if you've studied the history of it and kind of how it got started, what began with, I, I believe, were good intentions, soon became a fad. I mean, everybody and their dog was wearing WWJD. Uh, I mean, it, it was everywhere. Uh, and, and while the WWJD movement, if, if it's fair to label it that way, uh, they used this passage that we read as its anchor text. Unfortunately, they erred. For this text is not about what Jesus would do, but what he did. It's not about what Jesus would do, but what he did. The text is not about, try, the application of this text is not about trying to figure out what Jesus would do in a particular circumstance. I find myself in this circumstance. So, what would Jesus do? Or I find myself in this circumstance. What would Jesus do? And again, they use this text as kind of its anchor point. Uh, the, uh, in fact, it was verse 21, uh, uh, because you've also, uh, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example in the text so that you might follow in his steps. Following in Jesus' steps. What would Jesus do? That's not what the text is about. It's not about me finding myself in a particular situation at a particular time in my life, uh, at, at a particular place, not knowing what to do and asking myself, what would Jesus do? But rather, what this text is about is what Jesus did when he encountered unjust suffering. What Jesus did when he encountered unjust suffering. And when we experience the pain of unjust suffering, we need not ask WWJD, what would Jesus do? That, that's a question that, that doesn't need to be asked. Rather, we need to go back to this text and observe WDJD. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? We don't need to ask, what would Jesus do when we face unjust suffering? We have a certain word from God. We have a sure word from God. We don't have to guess. We don't have to bring our biases. We don't have to bring Jesus down to our level or make Jesus, uh, uh, what Jesus would do, something that might be acceptable to us. We have passages of Scripture that we can go to and that we can find out exactly what Jesus did. And because what he did provides us the needed... Uh, and the reason why we need to do this is because of, what, because of what Jesus did, it provides for us the needed encouragement, the needed guidance, and the needed hope as we encounter unjust suffering. As, I, as we look at this text, as we study this text, we'll find out that what Jesus did enables you and I to be encouraged when we face unjust suffering. That what Jesus did 
also gives us the guidance of what we do when we face the same kind of unjust suffering. And also the hope that is found uh, in what Jesus did. And, 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 and Peter does this by using, there's four relative clauses. When, when you get down to verse 22 and, and down from verse 22 to verse 24, there are four relative clauses. There are four relative clauses where, where Peter explains with specificity. He doesn't make general statements. He makes very specific, pointed statements of what it looks like, when we looked at verse 21 last week, what it looks like to trace your life according to the pattern of Jesus' life by walking the path He has blade, placing your feet in His footprints. Remember, we gave you the example of the snow. Uh, we gave you the example of a trail, what those words had to mean, of what it means to follow Jesus. And Peter gives us very specific things about what Jesus did when he encountered unjust suffering that gives us the needed encouragement, the needed hope, and the needed guidance. And as you recall, we said that this is our journey. This is what we have been called to, as verse 21 said. For to this we have been called. We have been called to slavery. Uh, that, that's the uh, uh, slaves of God. We have been called to unjust suffering. And not only is it our journey... It's our destiny as well, uh, that we walk the path of unjust suffering, which is a path that leads to the cross, through the grave, and on to glory. We, 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 we take up our cross and we follow Christ. We die to self. Uh, we are buried with Him uh, in, 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 uh, in baptism. We are raised with Him to walk in newness of life. And we do so so that when we stand before Him, we get to share in the glory of Christ because of our obedience in following Him. So, let's begin. What did Jesus do? Uh, when, what He did, as we said, enables us when suffering unjustly to experience encouragement through identification encouragement through identification. The first relative clause is found in verse 22. It says, uh, uh, look at verse 22, he, and re really the, the word is os, uh, os there, he who, he who, and that, that's the relative clauses. You, you're going to find he who, he who, he who, he who, okay? Uh, and, and so he who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, if you remember, as Jubal is reading through the text there, this Peter is citing here Isaiah 53, 9 from the Septuagint version of the New Testament. That, this idea of he who, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, it's possible that this citation can be understood as a Hebrew parallelism. In other words... Uh, another, a lot of times when we want to make a point, we'll repeat something. Or we'll repeat it twice. I mean, you're repeating it. Of course, you're doing it twice. Duh. Or, or no, you repeat it a third time or a fourth time. And a lot of times we learn by repetition over and over. Usually teachers spend the first six weeks of the school year going back over the stuff that they should have remembered uh, from, from last year. You know, because they have to have that repetition over and over and over. And we learn by repetition. 
Hebrew parallelism basically is kind of like that. It'll say something, and then it might unpack it a little bit different, and there's, there's different kinds of parallelism, but it might, it, it might say the same thing with different words. It might unpack the general idea and thought here. There, there's, there, there's different ways that Hebrew poetry can be used to, to, to get across the point of what the author and to stress the point of what the author is wanting to do. If this is a Hebrew parallelism, then basically the second phrase is explaining the first. So you would translate it this way. He committed no sin. That's the first phrase. That's the first phrase. He committed no sin. The second phrase uh, that's there in the text, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, if this is a Hebrew parallelism, then this is how you you could translate this. He committed no sin, not even... Was the, and, and the word that's translated neither can also be translated not even. It can be translated and, neither, nor, not even, depending upon the context. He committed no sin, not even was deceit found in his mouth. If that is the case, and I, I think when you look at the context, I think you can make the case for this. If that is the case, then what it indicates here is that it's not saying that, that Jesus... Uh, the, the, the idea that Peter is saying here, he says he committed no sin, Je- that's not a blanket statement. Is that certainly true of Jesus? It certainly is true of Jesus. Jesus committed no sin. Uh, but that, if, if this is a Hebrew parallelism, that this first statement is not making a blanket statement that Jesus committed no sin. Rather, what it's doing is saying this. It's indicating that Jesus did not sin in his speech using lies and deception. It's not saying that he, did, he sinned in other ways. Peter's emphasis here, and I think as we go through this text, you'll see why, why this can make sense. Peter's emphasis here is regarding Jesus' speech. He says again, He committed no sin. Not even was deceit found in his mouth. There's no deceit. There's no deception. There's no lies. An emphasis on his speech. Why would Peter emphasize this? And I think as we make our way through this, you're going to see why Peter emphasizes this. Now, also, we, we, when you look at the text, he says, uh, neither was deceit, not even was deceit, found in his mouth. Peter is, is, is driving this point home. The word translated found is the word eurisco. It means to diligently search, to scrutinize, and to observe. In other words, when this idea of, it's not, it's not like how I look. You know, I'll say, Lisa, I can't find it. It's, it's there. I looked. <laughs> I looked. It's not in there. I mean, I'm sure nobody else has that problem, especially us men, you know. I, I looked. It, it's not in there. And, and you know what happens. She goes, and she goes, and she, and she moves something <laughs> that I didn't move or too lazy to move, and what does she do? She finds it. It was there all the time. It was this last, this last week, I think. I couldn't find my, my cord. Or maybe it was the week before. I couldn't find my cord to, to plug in the phone. You know, uh, and, and so I was, I, was, I was fussing and fuming and walking around and wanting to know who unplugged. Somebody had to unplug that. Thing, that thing just didn't fall out by itself. And I'm looking around and I'm trying to find it. And lo and behold, guess what? It was down in the couch exactly where it was supposed to be. Exactly where it was supposed to be. I did not look, and I looked. In fact, I even stuck my hand down in there. And I, I in fact, the first thought that went through my mind when they found it was, I bet they planted it there. <laughs> you know, I bet they planted it there. 
You know, they're just trying to make me look bad. I bet they planted it there. I didn't look well. That's, that's the opposite of what this word is. This word is, I mean, it's laser-focused. You are searching every nook, every cranny, a cranny, every corner. You are searching diligently everywhere. And so here's the implication. The implication is that Jesus was not only innocent in terms of human laws, but also before God. Jesus was scrutinized by God and humanity. There were people that were listening at every word just to find something that they could accuse him of. God heard every word and found every word perfect. Human beings were listening to every word and finding something that they could bring accusation against him. And yet Peter makes it a, Peter stresses the point here that Jesus committed no sin again. That certainly is true, whether it's in action, whether it's in thought. But I think Peter's emphasis in this particular has to do with his mouth. In his speech, he did not commit sin. And it was speech that was listened to with, with, and, and, and examined in, in, in ways that, that, that you and I are, are, normally don't experience. His words were scrutinized. His words were diligently searched. His words were observed. And what Peter is doing is this. He's reminding these believers that their Lord was perfectly innocent in every way, and yet he experienced unjust suffering. I mean, usually if we're going usually when we suffer unjustly, usually we have something to say about it. And if we're going to sin, usually the first place, one of the first evidences of our sin is going to come out of our mouth. It's going to come out of our mouth. And Peter is reminding these people who are going through a very difficult time, he's reminding these people who have experienced unjust suffering, he's reminding these people who the Roman government has displaced them unfairly, taking away their livelihood unfairly, scattered their congregation unfairly, that they've gone through all these things, and Peter is reminding them that the one who could never be accused of anything, the one who never said any, not, 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 not a lie no, nor deception, nothing came out of his mouth that was sinful, still suffered unjustly still suffered unjustly. So if that happened to the one who was perfect, how should we have even the foggiest idea that it's not going to happen to us as we seek to try to serve our Lord? You see, our innocent suffering is part of our identification with Christ. That's the reason why we suffer unjustly. Now, we may not be able to pinpoint it to a specific action or, or a specific uh, uh, reason, but the main reason, the umbrella reason as to why we suffer unjustly is because of our identification with Christ. It's not because God's abandoned us. It's not because God is angry with us. It's not because God uh, is done with us. And again, we're talking about 
The kind of suffering this text is talking about is not the suffering that occurs because of our wrong, wrong choices. It's not the suffering that occurs just simply because we live in a broken world or broken people in a broken world. It's the kind of suffering that occurs is because we follow Jesus. We simply follow Jesus. We're trying to live out our lives according to the gospel. We're making decisions according to the gospel. We are living lives that are not politically correct. We are living lives that go against the grain of the culture. We are living lives that, that is not understood. We're making decisions that, that, uh, and hold positions that are deemed intolerable. But we are, we are seeking to, in a godly way to, to love people and to, uh, to, 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 to live by the truth, the truth of God's word. And because of that, we suffer. Because of that, we're maligned. Because of that, we might lose the possibility of promotion or, or even worse. And Peter is saying here, and Peter is trying to encourage these people, this is why. It's not because God's abandoned you as Satan would whisper in your ear. It's, it's not because God is mad at you. It's not because God's angry with you. It's because we simply are identified with Jesus Christ. And if we seek to live according to the Scriptures, we're going to suffer unjustly. What did Jesus do? He lived a sinless life, and yet he suffered unjustly. Unjustly. And we can take encouragement from the fact that because Jesus experienced this, because he experienced this, he knows and understands. So we can follow him with confidence from suffering to glory. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer for something that's not his fault. He knows what it's like to suffer unjustly because of wanting to walk in obedience with God. He understands that. And when that happens to you, and when that happens to me, whether or not nobody else understands, he does. He does. And even more so because it was like a conversation I had this week with someone where we talked about some things. And one of the, one of the hard things about criticism is that a lot of times there's always just a little bit of grain of truth in it, you know? And because there's just a little bit of grain of truth in it, it, it causes us to think, well, you know, gosh, maybe I did something here. And that's not, that's not always true. But, but usually there's always just a, because we're sinners, our motives are, are always tainted. Our actions are always tainted because of, of depravity. You know, we, we don't think right. We don't emote right. Uh, you know, we, we don't act right. We don't love right. There, there's, always, there's always something we're having to battle because we're battling our sin nature. We're, we're battling the effects of depravity upon our life. But Christ never had to do that. Jesus was just like us, and then the, the, the modifier, yet without sin. He never had to battle against a sinful nature because he didn't have one. He never had to battle against depravity because that wasn't part of his experience. He was virgin born, which is why we celebrate him being virgin. If he's not virgin born, he's no savior. He's no savior if he's not virgin born. But he is. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and because of that, his injustice is even greater than ours. His unjust suffering is even greater than ours. Because there's always a part that we can't be quite sure about because of our depravity. And so 
He understands. He knows. He understands. He, and, and, and because he understands, he also knows and understands the exact way to get through it. He knows which path to take. He knows where he needs to put his, his feet to avoid the landmines. He knows exactly what needs to be done when facing unjust suffering. And I can take encouragement in that. I can take encouragement that when I experience unjust suffering, it's not because God's abandoned me. It's not because God's displeased with me. That when I experience unjust suffering, I, I do so because of my identification with Christ. And because I'm identified with the one who was perfect and yet suffered unjustly, and he knows he, he was perfect in, 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 in how he dealt with it, I can, if I'll just listen to him, and if I'll follow in his steps, then I too can come out of this unjust suffering and, and, and experience the same kind of, 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 of uh, 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 same kind of glory that Christ is going to experience, or at least share in the glory that Christ is going to experience. So, what did Jesus do? Well, what Jesus did also enables us to experience guidance through reaction. Guidance through reaction. The second relative clause, which alludes to Isaiah 53, 7, is found in verse 23. When or who he, he who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. In other words, Peter is speaking, uh, uh, Peter refers to Jesus as he who did not respond in kind. He who did not respond in kind. And here's where I think, is, uh, where I think this, the, the parallelism, where we see, I think uh, Peter's talking about his speech. Peter speaks about two aspects of Jesus' unjust suffering. Again, look at the text again. It says there in verse 23, when he was reviled. When he was reviled. The word is lodoreo. Loidoreo. The word is translated reviled, and it refers to abusive speech. Any kind of abusive speech. Anywhere where you call somebody an idiot, to where... You're just, I mean, you're just, you're just laying into them with your tongue. You're, just, you're, you're slicing and dicing them with your tongue. It deals with abusive speech. The second word, look again, it's talking about describing here an aspect of Jesus' unjust suffering. When he's reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, when he suffered, it's the word pasco. Pasco. This word is used four times within this context. It's used, it's used twice to speak about our suffering. Look at verse 19. It says, For this is a gracious thing, that when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It refers to our sufferings again in verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's used twice to describe Jesus' suffering. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. And then in verse 23 that we just read. And here's the interesting thing about this word. The word focuses on the effect. On the effect of the experience. Whether it's a good experience 
or a bad experience. It focuses on the effect of the experience. This word can, be, can talk about, uh, again, we read the word suffering, and you think, well, it must be talking about something bad. It's talking about the effect of an experience. For example, with, with the grandkids down, we've watched Jim Carrey's The Grinch a couple times, okay? And if you've, ever, if you've ever watched that movie, if you recall when he gets transformed, he, he's, he's there and he's got tears kind of coming down his face and the sun kind of pops out behind the clouds and you see his face light up and you remember he says, some, he says something like this, I feel all toasty inside. Then he talks about leaking. You know, he's le- but you know, I feel all toasty inside. And so he's talking, the sun is bright on his face and while he certainly feels the warmth of the sun on his face because of the change and transformation that he's occurred, he feels something inside him entirely different than he ever felt before. That's a, way, that, that, that's a good aspect of this word. That he's experiencing uh, the effect. In, in other words, uh, in this context, this word is referring to the emotional physical, and psychological effects of the suffering experience. It's not just that he's saying we've suffered, something's happened to us. Peter's talking about something here that happens to us that affects us. It affects us. The the, the emphasis emphasis here is not upon the act or or, or what happened to us. The emphasis is, is upon how it rocked us, what it did to us physically, what it did to us emotionally, what, what it did to us psychologically, that, that, that we have this, this effect upon us, that this experience happened and it affected me in this way. The emphasis is upon the effect, not the act, not, what, what exa- not, 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 the, not the particular incident that happened, but how it rocked us how it affected us. Peter is emphasizing the reality of Jesus' pain in his suffering. It's not just that he suffered, but his suffering was painful. It affected him emotionally. It affected him physically. It affected his thinking, not in a sinful way, but attacked his mind. And, and, and so he's, he's feeling the effects of suffering, the pain of his suffering. And, G, and Peter is emphasizing this. So we don't get this, well, okay, Jesus suffered and this is how he responds. Man, no, man, he got knocked to the ground. He got knocked to the ground by what was going on. And while Peter is emphasizing the reality of Jesus' pain and his suffering, so must we. We err if we don't deal with the pain in our suffering. We err if we don't engage the pain in our suffering. I think so much, uh, there's a book out that, that talks about uh, uh, dealing with emotions, Alistair, I forget his last name, but, but talking about uh, untangling your emotions. And, 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 and basically, the idea is the sense that, that you've got to engage them. So many times in the church, we basically say, well, you know, if you're feeling bad emotions, then you must not have much faith. And, and, and that's, I don't think, what Peter's teaching us here. Peter's teaching us the fact Jesus had to engage that. And so, and so should we. It's not a lack of faith to say, well, you know, I, I shouldn't be hurting. 
I should trust God. God is sovereign. And yes, I need to trust God. And God is sovereign. And I need to, and, and, and as we're going to see, Jesus, Jesus, what Jesus did, he, he, there's two things he doesn't do. There's one thing he does do. And we do have to trust God. But that doesn't mean that we, that we minimize or ignore the pain of what this event has done to us. This unjust suffering that we've, that we've experienced. Enduring unjust suffering. It requires us. If we're going to endure, if we're going to come out through it better and more like Christ... Enduring unjust suffering requires us to engage the pain of it. The pain of it. And not just stuff it. Not just ignore it. But engage the pain of it. How? Well, WDJD. What did Jesus do? Three things. Two negative, one positive. Let's look at the text. When he was reviled, he did not. Here's a negative. He did not revile in return. In fact, these two things, they're, they're very staccato. There's three words that's used for this. There's three other words that's used for the next one. And Peter uses a wordplay here. Basically, it's lodoreo, and then he uses the word uk or no, anti-lodoreo. Lodoreo, uk, anti-lodoreo. Odoreo, no, anti-lodoreo. In other words, Jesus did not revile back when reviled. Jesus did not use... When Jesus was accosted with abusive speech, He didn't return with abusive speech. Jesus did not answer abusively. He did not respond in kind. And here's where I think the emphasis of speech is what's going on here in this passage. Now... Jesus told the truth, and Jesus laid it to him straight, but he didn't use a, he wasn't abusive in his speech. And isn't that easy? You know, I'll, I'll say this now, and, and I may even say it again. That, this is hard for me to do. It's hard for me to do. Uh, this past week, Lisa and I were going to bed, and everything was great. Everything was hunky-dory. We were getting ready to pray, and... She, I, I'm, I'm much more decisive than she is. I can look at a situation and make a decision and say this is what we need to do and not kind of look back, not, not, con- not constantly second-guessing myself. She struggles with that. There's, there is where I struggle where she doesn't, but this is an area where, where she struggles. And, and so she says, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I'll just make the decision. And she goes, no, just like that, no. And I thought, you... You don't want to make it. I can make it. I can make it that quick. I can make it that quick and, and make the right decision and not think a thing about it that quick. And she said, nope. Now, I would love to tell you that I said, okay, honey, let's talk about this. Here, let's pray. That's not what I did. That's not what I did. I, I did apologize the next morning for my response. But there was no Lodoreo, no anti-Lodoreo with me. There was Lodoreo, yes, Lodoreo! <laughs> you know? Abusive speech, because it, it was wrong. How she said it was wrong. 
the way she said it was wrong. But I didn't have to respond that way. That's what Jesus, that's what's being talked about here. Jesus did not respond back in kind with abusive speech when he was suffering unjustly through the use of abusive speech. Also, the next one, look at the text. It says, when he's reviled, he not, did not revile in return. When he suffered, here's the second negative, he did not threaten. Again, three words in the Greek text. Paskon, uk, or no. Paskon, no. There's no H there, so a paid, a, uh, that's an I. I, golly, Greg, a pi, a pilot, a pele, there you go, I, sounds like eight, eight I. Pay, a pele, pascal no a pele. In other words, suffered, no threatening. Suffered, I mean, if you want to just, if you just want to translate it very woodenly, suffered, no threatening. Suffered, no threatening. Jesus did not threaten them with vengeance if you give them the chance. It's kind of like what you see on the movie sometime. You know, the bad guy's got the good guy all wrapped up. And, you know, he's getting ready to kill him. And the good guy says, you better kill me good because if I get out of here, I'm going to come back and I'm going to kill you. And I always wondered, why didn't the fool just shoot the guy in the head immediately, you know? Why, why, why take him and let him go through all that suffering that he figures out a way to get out and find his way out and he goes back and he wreaks vengeance upon this person? And that's the idea here. There's no vengeance. Jesus is being treated unjustly, but he doesn't threaten them with vengeance. In fact, what do we hear him say on the cross? If I, when I come down off of this thing, when I get resurrected, I'm going to show you who's boss and you're going to pay, you're going to pay for it. He says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow. Wow. Jesus did not threaten them with vengeance if given the chance. I get an opportunity, you're going to pay. And you're going to pay big time. Big time. That's the two negatives. But there's a positive thing here. Look at the text again. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Jesus do? Instead of sinning under the pressure of unjust suffering, instead of saying something with his lips, instead of, instead of giving abusive speech for abusive speech, and instead of threatening retaliation when he, was, when he was suffering, what did Jesus do? Jesus committed himself to continued trust in God. God, you are the just judge. You're the ultimate judge. You're going to intervene sometime. You're going to make this right. I'm going to trust you. Help me not to sin with my mouth. Help me not to make sin with my mouth by using abusive speech or by threatening. Help me to do that. Why? Why did Jesus do this? And we go back to a statement we've been making. We've stated in different ways, but over the course of this last couple of weeks as we look at this test, because unjust suffering listen listen if you don't get anything else out of this message unjust suffering was god's mysterious way to accomplish the redemption of humanity if jesus christ who committed no sin had not suffered unjustly you and i have no hope you and i have no hope unjust suffering 
Again, remember, the kind of suffering, we're not talking about suffering because of, of choices we make. We're not suffering because we live in a broken world where people sin against other people. We're talking about the suffering that occurs because we follow Jesus. Because we follow Jesus and seek to live our lives in accordance to what the Scriptures teach. Unjust suffering was God's mysterious way to accomplish the redemption of humanity. And if that is true for Jesus, then what that means for me since I'm following in His steps is that my unjust suffering is also part of God's mysterious way in accomplishing His purposes. Ouch. But also, that gives me hope. Unjust suffering for Jesus was God's mysterious way to accomplish the redemption of humanity. He had to suffer unjustly. He had to. That's what we, when we talk about, we believe in a vicarious, substitutionary atonement, that he died for us, the undeserving died for the deserving. It's a vicarious, substitutionary atonement. That is a cardinal doctrine of our faith. To deny that is to deny the atonement. Jesus died for us, not for himself. He died unfairly in order that he might satisfy the justice of God. Our, my unjust suffering, is also part of God's mysterious way in accomplishing his purpose. What purposes? I don't know. That's why it's mysterious. Huh? I'm not sure. What Jesus did, his reaction to unjust suffering, gives us guidance for our reaction to it. Rather than responding in kind, we commit ourselves to the one who judges justly. Again, Paul, Peter's very specific here. We don't have to guess what would Jesus do. We know what Jesus did when it came to unjust suffering. So finally, what Jesus did enables us to know hope through the salvific, salvific is just a fancy way of saying salvation, hope through the salvific reality. And that's found in verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Overseer of your souls. Peter unpacks this truth in the final two relative, relative clauses that are found in verse 24. He himself, he who bore our sins. And then he who wounds, in which we have been healed. And then verse 25 is a summary statement. So the final relative clauses are in verse 24, and, and verse 25 is, is a summary statement, and that's where we'll begin next week. I had to decide whether to make this really one long sermon or, I was going to say short, but you all know, know I'd be lying. A shorter sermon, okay? And, that, and that's where we're going to look at, and that's where we're going to start next week. And there, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack in verses 24 and 25. So as we close out this morning, let's think about where this journey that the Scriptures have taken us this morning. What have we learned? First of all, the, experiences of, the experience of unjust suffering 
requires us to ask WDJD, not WWJD. We're wasting our time when we experience unjust suffering if we say, now, what would Jesus do in this situation? We already know what he would do. We already know what he would do. Peter tells us. Peter was an eyewitness of it. Peter was right there when it happened. We already know what Jesus would do when faced with unjust suffering. We've also learned that his unjust suffering encourages us in ours, through our, through our identification with Him. We know the why of our suffering. It's not specific, a specific why, but we know the general why. The general why is because we're identified with Jesus. And when you identify yourself with Christ, you're going to run counter to the culture. You're going to run counter to the thinking of the day. You're going to hold truths that the culture finds repugnant. That, that means, though, we still love them, we reach out to them, we seek to, to, to minister to them, but we are going to suffer unjustly because of our identification with Christ. And because when that happens, because Christ did that for us, because Christ has experienced that, we can be encouraged because He knows and understands so we can follow Him with confidence from suffering to glory. Jesus knows how to, uh, how, how to experience unjust suffering that leads to glory. He knows how that's done. He, he's written the manual. He knows exactly how to, when you suffer unjustly, how that can turn to receiving glory from God. All we've got to do is follow Him. All we've got to do is follow Him. Now, now that, that, that's a mouthful right there. That's easier said than done. But all we have to do is follow. All we have to do is follow Him. But like I said, that's hard. Because we, we learned that what Jesus did guides our reaction. Jesus didn't respond in kind. All I have to do is follow Him. But when Lisa goes, no! I may be over-exaggerating that a little bit. You know, so. <laughs> when she says no, gosh, there's a bunch of stuff that just wells up inside of me. And I'm talking before I'm even thinking. And I've got to, again, following Jesus, making that statement, it's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. Jesus did not respond in kind with abusive words or physical retaliation. But he chose to commit himself to the one who judges justly. That is a lifelong lesson. Nobody on this side of heaven, except Jesus, will ever get it right every time. It's a lesson that, it's a lesson that we're constantly learning our whole life. Choosing to commit ourselves to the one who judges justly rather than using abusive words or physical retaliation. Again, the context, the kind of suffering we're talking about. And like Jesus, like Jesus, like Jesus, our unjust suffering is always, always, always part of God's mysterious way in accomplishing His purposes. Always. 
Always. When I'm suffering unjustly. Always. That's what Jesus did. And we're next week to talk about the hope that we have in what Jesus did. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this day and we thank you for your truth. Lord, give us your wisdom. This is so easy to, to run off into one end of the spectrum to the other. So easy to, to misconstrue, misunderstand, misapply. So easy to take out of context. So, Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to think well through these truths, apply them well in our lives. And, Lord, we just ask that you would strengthen and encourage us. If there's someone here that doesn't know Christ, Lord, I pray you show them their need today. For those who may be experiencing the pain of unjust suffering or still reeling from the pain of unjust suffering from the past, Father, I pray that you'd help them to work through it. And Lord, as they experience that pain because of their commitment to serving you, their commitment to walk in obedience to Christ, their commitment to do the right thing, Lord, I pray that you would just, you'd just help them and guide them through it. Lord, encourage and strengthen. Lord, we ask that you would be at this time as we respond to your word. and Lord, that we would um, leave here today, uh, Lord, with a better understanding of, of what Jesus did. We ask now, Lord, your continued blessings upon this time. May your word not be snatched away. May it not be choked out by the cares of this world. But may it find fruit in our life today. We pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. First, we want to start with those of you that may not know Christ as your Savior. Christ took what you deserved. He took what you deserved. He was on that cross unfairly, unjustly. You and I should have been the ones on the cross. You and I should be the ones who are facing the wrath of God. We've sinned against God. We've rebelled against Him. We choose to, we don't want anybody, we don't want anybody telling us no. We want to be able to make our own choices our own way. We don't want any kind of guidance from the scriptures. We want to be God. We want to be God. That's all of us. We're born that way. We choose to live life that way. And if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, we want to encourage you today. Put your faith and trust in Him. He accomplished on that cross and in His life. Because of what He accomplished in His life, living a life of perfection, because He was God and man, and took and offered up His perfect life to God, and took upon Himself the wrath and the payment for our sin, you and I have hope today. Christmas is about hope. God became a man. God became like one of us and accomplished what no man could ever accomplish. And we had somebody like us die for us who was perfect because he was God. We encourage you today to put your faith and trust in him. For those of you who do know Christ as your Savior, you experienced unjust suffering. And we do, all of us do at times. 
we would learn from this text today. It, it's, it is easy. Gosh, it's so easy. To, it's so easy to read and think, oh, duh, yeah, there it is. Bing, bang, boom. But it takes the power of the Holy Spirit and the humbling of our hearts and choosing to respond and not react. It's a lifelong battle. But it's a battle worth fighting. You get tired. But it's a battle worth enduring in. Because it's the path that leads to glory. It's the path that leads to glory. And I can say that with assurance because it's exactly what Jesus did. And that path led to his glory and his exaltation. We're going to go to the Lord in a time of silence. And if you need to trust Christ as your Savior, call out to Him now. If you're not sure exactly what that means, we'd love to talk with you after the services. For believers, a time to receive encouragement, a time to pray, maybe a time to seek God's forgiveness or His help. Maybe you just need to embrace the reality of your pain right now. But whatever it is, we're going to give you some time to do that. And then we'll continue our worship and close out our time together.